The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Welcome to Go Green Radio, brought to you by Covanta Energy. Reduce, reuse, recycle, rethink renewable energy and energy from waste. This program will help start you thinking about how to protect our world and its important resources. Now here's the host for Go Green Radio, Jill Buck. Welcome to Go Green Radio, everyone. So glad that you could join us. We're excited about our guests that we have today. We're going to be talking about a wildlife conservation issue um, that we've touched on before, but we've got a whole new aspect to discuss. It's about um, African elephants. Recently, there was a petition filed, and uh, it was basically to uplist the African elephant from its current status as threatened, um, which was done in 1978. Um, and now the petition is asking the U.S. government to uplist African elephants from threatened to endangered under the Endangered Species Act. And we're going to be talking about that. Uh, we have two guests today. We have Peter LaFontaine. He's the campaign officer for the International Fund for Animal Welfare. And we have Masha Kalanina. She is the, an international trade policy specialist with the Humane Society International. International. We're going to be discussing this petition in detail. Consider this class in session. By the end of this episode, you will know everything that you need to know about not only the petition, but the status of African elephants and how the U.S. government and U.S. citizens can play a role in protecting this majestic species. Welcome to Go Green Radio, Peter and Masha. I'm so glad to have you both on the show. Thank you, Joe. Thanks for having us on. Peter, I'd like to start with you, and for the benefit of our listeners who may be unfamiliar with your organization, I'd love for you to tell us a little bit about the International Fund for Animal Welfare and what makes it unique among wildlife organizations. Sure. Uh, Well, I'm based in Washington, D.C., but IFA has offices around the world. We have projects in about 40 countries, and these include everything from conducting anti-poaching workshops for wildlife rangers to rescuing animals after natural disasters. And IFA's mission is to improve the welfare of individual animals while also working to conserve populations. Uh, so we help companion animals like cats and dogs uh, alongside our many projects focused on wildlife like elephants, uh, tigers, whales, and seals. And what makes your organization different from, you know, like the World Wildlife Fund or, you know, some of the organizations that, uh, you know, we see even on television ads? Sure. So I touched on it a little bit, the the difference between uh, welfare and conservation. We try to uh, focus on both elements. Um, Individual animals uh, don't necessarily uh, become the focus for some other organizations who focus on populations and the overall uh, habitat health, but we try to do both. Gotcha. Masha, similar question for you. I think many of our listeners are familiar with the Humane Society here in the U.S., but may not realize that there's an international Humane Society. I'd love for you to give us an overview of the work of your organization. Sure. Um, And again, thank you so much for having us on your show. Um, We are also headquartered in Washington, D.C., but uh, have 
basically our offices are all around the world, um, offices in India and Mexico, UK, Canada, uh, Europe and Brussels. Um, so we are global. We are the international arm of uh, Humane Society of the United States. And um, our, our pillars focus on a variety of issues, including animals in research and testing, animals in agriculture, companion animals, um, and, of course, wildlife. Um, and we're very similar to IFON that we also focus on uh, welfare concerns of individual animals as well as their uh, conservation. Uh, with respect to um, elephants specifically, uh, we've been working uh, for more than 25 years to so- stop the elephant ivory trade and we have uh, conducted and supported investigations into the trade and advocated for stronger laws at state, national, um, and international levels. Mm-hmm. Um, so, and just maybe briefly to say that we, we've, our efforts focus on um, curbing Chinese demand for ivory, mm-hmm. addressing the role of Chinese citizens living in Africa uh, with respect to poaching and trafficking of ivory, um, as well as we fight to prevent uh, the weakening of um, uh, ivory trade ban uh, under CITES, uh, which is a convention on international trade in endangered species. But we're going to get into that a little later. Absolutely. Thanks, guys. That's a great uh, great place to start. It'll give us a frame of reference of you know, what your organizations do and why you're so interested in the petition that you've recently filed um, to have African elephants placed on the endangered list. Peter, help us understand what difference a change in terminology would mean for the elephants. What's the difference between being listed as threatened versus being listed as endangered? Sure. It's a, it's a good question. Uh, there are really two ways to think about it. Uh, first, the terminology is important because of what it indicates about the actual situation on the ground. Uh, an endangered listing means that the species is in danger of extinction, uh, whereas a threatened listing just means that it's likely to become endangered in the future. So in this way, an endangered listing would simply acknowledge the science uh, that African elephants are in the midst of a huge poaching crisis uh, that's taking a toll across the continent, Uh, and that could drive some regional populations to extinction very soon. And then second, uh, the classification has implications for trade and for other activities. Uh, Like you said at the beginning of the the program, elephants have been listed as threatened since 78, uh, but that classification has allowed some trade to continue, along with imports into the U.S. of non-commercial items like tusks from sport-hunted elephants. Um, Now, an endangered listing would prevent much of this trade and would force trophy hunters to justify their actions with better data, both of which would result in reduced incentives to kill elephants. Right. Now, Masha, tell us with whom this petition was filed and give us some idea of what the process is. What will that petition, what what path will it follow in order to actually be enacted? And also um, give us some idea of how the public will be involved in that process. Absolutely. Um, so we're filing this petition with the Department of Interior and specifically Fish and Wildlife Service, who makes the decisions regarding endangered species listings under the Endangered Species Act. So now that we have uh, filed the petition, um, Fish and Wildlife Service has uh, 90 days to make um, a positive finding uh, whether the petition may be warranted. That's the technical term. And it will be, you know, it may be warranted if it shows substantial scientific information presented in our petition to support the endangered listing. So um, then uh, essentially this, this will open a status review uh, whereby Fish and Wildlife Service will solicit public comments 
and information from scientists um, and African range states as well on the matter. And uh, after concluding the status review, for which they have a year, uh, Fish and Wildlife Service uh, will make a finding as to whether the petition actually is, in fact, warranted. Now, when I mention these timelines, um, these are not set in stone. Um, there are, there's a backlog of review under the ESA, so um, there is a high chance that these timelines will um, n- not necessarily be met. Um, and so, essentially, if the agency finds that the petition action is warranted, they will then simultaneously issue a proposed rule to change the listing status of the species. And so at that stage, they will again solicit public comment on that proposed rule, and then they will finalize the rule. So we estimate that this could actually take four to five years even, um, which highlights the importance of filing this petition now, even though we have um, the U.S. government taking substantial action to curb wildlife trafficking um, even in the present moment. Let me ask you a question, Masha. You know, is this the only path to uplisting the elephants from um, endanger, or from threatened to endangered? Could it come from an act of Congress, or is this the only way to make it happen? The decision can be made by Fish and Wildlife Service without a petition, as I understand. Um, but um, the, I believe that the petition or uh, you know unilateral action from Fish and Wildlife Service are the only ways to to um, uplist. And Peter can chime in if I'm. Uh, that's my understanding, too. Uh, Congress, you know, theoretically, a, a senator or a representative could petition on behalf of Congress or himself or herself, mm-hmm. but uh, that's not usually how it works. It, it's usually initiated by the public or by an NGO like uh, IFA or HSI. So, uh, gotcha. like Masha said, it it's, uh, can take course in the um, internal review process, but usually it's external. So with the timeline that you're mentioning, Masha, I mean, this is going to transcend the Obama administration. This is going to, this is going to go on, you know, well after the, the next presidential election. So that's interesting to know. Um, Peter, tell us what's going on with African elephants that precipitated this petition. A lot of us only see elephants in the zoo, um, you know, maybe watching Nat Geo on TV. But help us understand the timing of this petition petition and why you believe that action is so imperative? Yeah, I think it's, it's starting to trickle out um, the news uh, of what's going on in Africa. But for those who, who aren't aware, it's a pretty tragic situation. Uh, over the last seven or eight years, there's really been a spike in elephant poaching, uh, that is illegal killing uh, in Africa, that's really sent the species into a free fall. Uh, it's caused mostly by demand for ivory uh, in China and other Asian nations. But there's also sustained demand for ivory in countries like the U.S., which has caused prices to go through the roof and has incentivized organized criminal networks and even some terrorist groups to industrialize the process. Uh, Poaching is happening on a scale we just haven't seen before. And now the U.S. government has been really vocal the last year or so about addressing the American role in this crisis, and they're working to implement what they call a near-total ban on imports and exports and domestic trade of ivory. Uh, We support these efforts. We think they've made a lot of progress in the last year, and they're definitely acting in good faith. Uh, But by filing the petition, we're indicating that we think the U.S. needs to go even one step farther. Mm -hmm. 
Masha, what difference can a U.S. law or executive order make for elephants in the wild in Africa? I mean, this may seem like a really simplistic question, but I know uh, that we'll have listeners asking this of themselves. How can a U.S. law protect a species that doesn't live here? And that's a completely reasonable question and one that we also get quite often. Um, I guess the, the bottom line here is that although elephants do not live in the United States, U- U.S. is a major consumer of African elephant parts. So we are in, we're one of the biggest ivory markets in the world. Um, we are the largest market in the world for elephant-hunted the trophies from, ele- from African elephants and also products made from elephant skin that uh, can be used to make things like cowboy boots. Um, so we are a huge market, and what, can, what, what the listing does is it prevents import of African elephant products into the United States under certain conditions. So essentially, as they're currently, well, African elephants are currently listed as threatened, but there is a special rule that allows for significant international and domestic trade in elephant parts. As endangered, however, these imports, uh, so of ivory, of sport-hunted trophies, of skins, would generally be prohibited um, unless it can be proven that such imports, and this is the term, enhance the survival or propagation of the species. But what we have seen in practice with other endangered listings is that essentially it just cuts off all trade, and um, these exceptions rarely apply. So this, this could be a huge impact um, if on, you know, on, on the protection of uh, the African elephant if, if we take this measure here domestically. And very we should good. also probably mention, I mean, in endangered listing, the trade stuff is very important. Uh, Masha laid it out really well. But it, it's also an important way to influence other nations. We've seen this happen in 1998, or sorry, 1988 with the African Elephant Conservation Act, which spurred action at the international level. Uh, then again in 2013, when the U.S. crushed its stockpile of illegal ivory, uh, and then China turned around and crushed just a little bit more mm-hmm. uh, of its stockpile, people are paying attention, and the endangered listing is a really good way to call uh, call attention to the, the crisis that's happening. Very Peter good. is absolutely right. Maybe just to add one more element is that um, when... And when, if there is an endangered listing and there is an application for import, for example, of, you know, sport-hunted uh, tusk, uh, tusks, um, the, this application will have to be published in the Federal Register, and comments will be accepted from experts and the public on each import. So that mm-hmm. really adds a lot of transparency to the process um, and also helps you, the U.S. government make their import decisions based on the best available information. That's interesting. I didn't realize there was that that opening to public comment on those. That, that's really interesting. We're going to take a quick commercial break, but when we come back, we've got much, much more with Peter and Masha. So don't go away, folks. There's more Go Green Radio right after this. News. Opinion. Your voice counts. Call toll-free 1-866-472-5787. 1-866-472-5787. VoiceAmerica.com. Take a wild guess. How much garbage generated in the United States today is converted into energy? Is it 26%, 43%, or 14%? 
Working here and around the world to produce a reliable supply of clean, green energy, Covanta Energy works with communities to turn household trash into energy. Oh yeah, that question I asked earlier? Today, only 14% of U.S. garbage is converted to energy. Just 14%. Covanta alone processes half of that municipal solid waste into renewable energy for a cleaner world. For more information about Covanta Energy, visit us today at www.covantaenergy.com. How do you achieve the utmost success in your life, career, faith, relationships, and more? It's all here in the business of living with host Scott Ventrella. Scott has experience as an executive coach, sought-after speaker, and lecturer. He and his guests will offer practical solutions and strategies to help you move to the next level of success no matter where you are in your life and career. The Business of Living airs live every Saturday at 11 a.m. Eastern Time, 8 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com You're listening to Go Green Radio with your host, Jill Buck. Jill would love to hear your comments or questions on today's show, so call us toll-free at 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Write to us, too. Save some trees and send us an email to gogreenradio at gmail.com. That's gogreenradio at gmail.com. Now back to Go Green Radio with your host, Jill Buck. Welcome back to Go Green Radio. Just in case you're just now tuning in, let me catch you up. Our show today is about a recent petition that's been filed with the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service to uplist African elephants from their current status as threatened to endangered under the Endangered Species Act. And we are joined today by Peter LaFontaine from the International Fund for Animal Welfare and Masha Kalanina, who is an international trade policy specialist with the Humane Society International. Now, Peter, for those of us who aren't into ivory, help us understand the market for elephant products because, you know, I myself am really not aware of what elephant parts are used for and why people would import those. So besides ivory, which is the obvious one, what elephant products are on the market and how much money is the elephant product market worth? Uh, sure. Well, just to clarify, I'm not into ivory myself. <laughs> so all of this is uh, is coming uh as I learn more about the issue and have done some investigations into various auction uh, practices and visited retail shops and things like that. Uh, but from what we've seen, it looks like ivory seems to make up the bulk of elephant products for sale, but there are also plenty of items out there uh, made from elephant leather. Uh, Masha mentioned cowboy boots. Uh, you'll even see whole parts of elephants, uh, like feet, that are turned into umbrella stands or stools. Yeah. Uh, some pretty grisly stuff is available. Uh, most gross. of what's available for sale. <laughs> oh, sorry. Go ahead. I said that's just gross, but it, that's just yeah, me. <laughs> it's, it's a, a little tasteless at, at best, um, <laughs> but it's out there. Mm-hmm. Most of what we have for sale in the U.S. comes in the form of ivory carvings. Uh, you probably have seen statuettes or chess pieces or things like that. Although older musical instruments can have small ivory parts, and you can still find billiard balls and dice and silverware with ivory handles. Uh, in some of the investigations that I've helped to conduct, even though it's illegal, if you look for it, you can find trophy tusks for sale. Uh, and, you know, this is pointing at 
probably the biggest problem for sales in the U.S., which is uh, the term is called parallel markets. If you have uh, a legal item uh, available for sale next to a next to an illegal item with ivory, it's very hard to tell them apart, especially because they don't come with documentation. They look alike. Uh, so an unscrupulous retailer or somebody who simply doesn't know could sell an il- illegal item as if it was a, a legal antique. Uh, it's hard to say how much exactly is out there, but we do know that ivory makes up a major piece of the illegal wildlife trade, which is about a 7 or $10 billion business annually. Wow. That's, that's a big business. That's a really oh, yeah. big business. It's, generally speaking, wildlife trade is considered about the fourth biggest international illegal business. I mean, it's, it's behind human trafficking and guns and, I believe, counterfeiting. Wow. Uh, but it's, it's huge. Well, Masha, I'd like for you to talk to us about the wildlife crime networks because I saw in your bio that previously to working with the Humane Society International, you also provided consulting services um, for the U.S. Department of Defense, the SEC, and the intelligence community. Why, you know, help us to understand the connection between what's going on with African elephants and the global security threat. Um, Who's involved? How big is it? And why is this such a threat? Absolutely. Um, This is probably one of the most important uh, issues that has really driven the slaughter of elephants to the top of the U.S. um, agenda um, because of the threat to our national security. And... um, and the reason is because there are groups like the Al-Qaeda-affiliated Al-Shabaab in Somalia, uh, Joseph Kony's Lord, Lord's Resistance Army in Central Africa, Boko Haram in Nigeria. These are the militant groups that are really profiting from the slaughter of the elephants and the trafficking in ivory and other elephant parts. And so what are they doing um, with the profit? Well, they're, uh, they're paying their fighters, they're buying arms and ammunition. And it is widely believed that the uh, 2013 Nigeria mall attack was actually, the, by al-Shabaab, was funded by um, elephant poaching. And uh, this, is a, this is really a threat to even us here in the United States. And essentially, you know, our consumer desire for useless ivory trinkets, skins, and other products. Um, it's funding terrorism and, uh, and de- those who destabilize entire regions. And that is a threat to, to us here in the United States. And just to give an understanding of the scale, uh, often um, seizures are an indicator of, of the scale of the problem. And um, a large-scale seizure for ivory is something that weighs over 500 kilograms, um, so half a ton. And uh, prior to 2009, there were on average between five and seven large-scale seizures that took place a year. And then since 2009, this has jumped to 15 and as many as 21 of these seizures a year. In 2013, there were 18 made in one year. And so this is really just giving you an idea of the scale. And, um, you know, generally the pattern is, of course, that um, these are both criminal groups in Africa and criminal groups throughout Asia that are facilitating um, these networks. Um, And uh, they are using uh, legitimate channels sometimes uh, in terms of, you know, freight and air transport and, um, you know, shipping 
So that's um, that's that's one area that's been been targeted for um, a way to to resolve this is to really cut off those, those channels for these um, groups. And maybe just one last point is that there are um, wildlife enforcement networks, which are it's, it's basically a coalition of um, various uh, investigator investigation groups, so like Interpol, and um, you have the UNODC, UN Office of, on Drugs and Crime. You have the World Bank involved and World Customs Organization, CITES. Um, they, they come together to really try and address um, the, these, these issues around these criminal networks and to stop the trade. That's fantastic, and I, I really appreciate your thorough explanation there. I think that's something that people need to know. I mean, in as much as people are starting to pay attention to things like, you know, our, our dependence on foreign oil as only fueling um, our, our, you know, people who don't like us very much and, and helping to fund their operations, people need to know that the same is true of the ivory trade and what have you, that there's some pretty bad characters involved. You know, I can it is, imagine. It is actually important sure. to note. I mean, for groups like Al Shabaab, there have been various numbers uh, thrown out there for the level of funding that they get. I, I think it's really crucial to to note that we don't we don't know. I mean, we know that these groups are involved at some level, but it's it's very important that the U.S. government and international agencies uh, really start working their intelligence networks to figure out the scale and scope of the problem. Mm-hmm. Uh, you do have groups like LRA, the John Jaweed militias that have been seen at the scene of the crime and have quite uh, solid evidence tracing them back. But we really do need more information. Well, and of course, Peter, that means the requisite funding to allow uh, exactly. you know, boots on the yep. ground. <laughs> Very now, much so. Yep. And, you know, I can imagine that by the time we're finished with this interview, some of our listeners are going to be going out on both your organization's websites, maybe looking for ways to get involved, maybe looking to even donate. And so let's talk for a moment about um, your organization. Peter, we'll start with the, the International Fund for Animal Welfare. How exactly are you working with governments, customs officers, and rangers to protect elephants? Give us some specific case studies and success stories that might inspire our listeners. Well, some of this is what I do, uh, lobbying Congress to strengthen conservation laws, provide more funding for programs, uh, making the case to the administration that the public supports these things. I have colleagues in a dozen other countries who do similar work uh, with their various national governments. Uh, and beyond that, our wildlife trade program has provided funding and guidance for numerous initiatives, everything from Interpol's Environmental Crime Unit to smaller organizations like uh, Game Rangers International. And those partnerships are really at the core of our mission, actually helping to implement better practices on the ground. Um, in terms of specifics, uh, we've done anti-poaching and wildlife crime trainings in places like uh, Bhutan, Cameroon, Kenya. Uh, last year, we worked with Game Rangers International to train several dozen members of the Zambian Wildlife Authority's anti-poaching and intelligence units, uh, doing firearms training and property entry drills, um, classroom training on the importance of considering human rights during arrests, and other aspects of law enforcement. So we have a lot of programs. It's, it, it's a multi-pronged approach, uh, really hitting governments, hitting uh, customs officials, um, law enforcement, basically anywhere that there's a toehold, we try to uh, to insert ourselves and improve the situation. Fantastic. 
fantastic. Masha, you know, you, you're with the Humane Society International, and I know that you all have a lot of specific case studies and success stories as well. Um, part of that is your interface with the Convention on International Trade in Endangered Species of Wild Fauna and Flora. Talk to us about um, that convention and, and some of the things that your organization sees as the shortcomings of that that convention when it comes to protecting African elephants. More than happy to. Um, This is probably the most important convention when it comes to protecting animals in the wild. Um, It is a multilateral agreement under the United Nations, and almost all countries um, are a party. Um, At this point, there are 181 nations that are members' societies, and they, the point is to monitor and regulate international trade um, in wildlife. The way that this is done is through various levels of protection based on appendices, and there are three of these appendices. So Appendix 1 is um, where the most endangered animals are placed under. And what that means is that there cannot be any commercial uh, trade in that um, animal, um, there are some exceptions, but um, what is required under Appendix 1 is an import and export permit for a wildlife product or a live animal. There is Appendix 2 where the um, animal may become threatened if, not closely, if the trade is not closely controlled, and that requires only an export permit, and commercial trade in these species is, is permitted. So the third is um, uh, the sort of least uh, restrictive appendix, and this is where a party that has some domestic measures is taken to protect a species requests that they be listed because that provides them with some level of assistance, essentially, under CITES. And um, so the African elephants are all on Appendix 1 except for the populations of Botswana, Namibia, Zimbabwe, and South Africa. Now, now, the reason we have these exceptions is, um, well, there, there are many reasons, but um, one is that CITES is a, is a political body, and decisions are made uh, most often based on diplomatic needs and uh, not necessarily the biological needs of, of the species. Mm-hmm. And uh, the way that enforcement of these appendices works is it's still a, a domestic matter, so there has to be implementation of the appendix listings under domestic law. Uh, so, for the most part, we're relying on you know good faith efforts of uh, the party uh, states to to implement the protections. Um, but we are often when when we talk about wildlife, we're we're talking about countries that have some problems with corruption and many other issues like instability uh, in terms of conflict, et cetera. So it's it's a challenge for for these countries to implement the these listings. Mm-hmm. So there are some drawbacks to CITES um, uh, because although it has, you know, provided wonderful protections for animals and still extremely critical, um, it, it governs only international trade, so that which crosses borders, but not trade domestically, internally within each country. Again, that I has see. to be regulated by that specific state. Um, the see. protections don't apply equally to all classes of, of wildlife. So the CITES ban on um, African elephant um, products, that was, uh, that's from 1989. Basically, it only applies to ivory acquired after the elephants were listed under CITES. And there are, with proper documentation, you can pre-convention ivory. So essentially, it can be imported, exported, or re-exported. And 
you know, finally, I think the biggest point is that um, under CITES, there have been two massive legal sales of ivory. So these were stockpiles that were sold um, in 1999 from Botswana, Namibia, and Zimbabwe to Japan, stockpiles of ivory, and in 2008. Um, so these were from Botswana, Namibia, Zimbabwe, and South Africa to China and Japan. Mm-hmm. And the reason it's a big deal is because after these um, legal sales, we've seen increased demand for ivory. We've seen volumes of ivory seized dramatically um, increase after these legal sales. We've seen the rebirth of a carving industry in China for ivory. Mm-hmm. And uh, it's really what has led to the catastrophic increase in the poaching rates. Well, and I want to talk about the role that China plays in this, but first we're going to take a quick commercial break. And when we return, we'll talk about that very issue. So folks, don't go away. There's much more Go Green Radio right after this. News. Opinion. Your voice counts. Call toll-free 1-866-472-5787. 1-866-472-5787. VoiceAmerica.com. Take a wild guess. How much garbage generated in the United States today is converted into energy? Is it 26%? 43%? Or 14%? Working here and around the world to produce a reliable supply of clean, green energy, Covanta Energy works with communities to turn household trash into energy. Oh, yeah, that question I asked earlier? Today, only 14% of U.S. garbage is converted to energy. Just 14%. Covanta alone processes half of that municipal solid waste into renewable energy for a cleaner world. For more information about Covanta Energy, visit us today at www.covantaenergy.com. All around the outermost rim of the shield, he set the mighty stream of the river Oceanus, creating Achilles' shield in Homer's The Iliad, Book 18. Rachel Carson in The Sea Around Us said, All at last, return to the sea, to Oceanus, the ocean river, like the ever-flowing stream of time, the beginning and the end. Moyer's Environmental Dialogues with Dr. Rob Moyer offers lively dialogue and revealing narrative inquiry into how individuals are overcoming obstacles and creating a greener and blue planet Earth. Tune in Thursdays at 3 p.m. Eastern, 12 noon Pacific on the Voice America Variety Channel. Stimulating talk gets those synapses in the brain firing really fast. All the time. The number one Internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com You're listening to Go Green Radio with your host, Jill Buck. Jill would love to hear your comments or questions on today's show, so call us toll-free at 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Write to us, too. Save some trees and send us an email to gogreenradio at gmail.com. That's gogreenradio at gmail.com. Now back to Go Green Radio with your host, Jill Buck. Welcome back to Go Green Radio. In case you're just tuning in, let me catch you up. We're talking about African elephants today. And since that species was listed as threatened in 1978, uh, the species population has declined about 60%. And so there's been a recent petition with the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service to uplist African elephants from threatened to endangered under the Endangered Species Act. And that's what we're talking about today. Um, Peter LaFontaine um, 
I would like for you to talk to us about the role that China is playing in this situation. It's kind of hard for the layman to understand how the Chinese could be impacting elephants that live thousands of miles away on the African Mm -hmm. continent. Um, But help us understand that and what your organization is doing to help educate Chinese consumers. Sure. Uh, Well, it's not just a Chinese problem, but China is generally considered to be the biggest consumer of ivory and elephant products uh, in the world. And like Masha laid out before the break, they were a beneficiary of one of the CITES one-off sales uh, in 2008. Uh, But that was predicated upon the idea that they would set up a registration system to make sure that what was sold was was legal and documented uh, and that people could be assured that they weren't buying illegally poached ivory. Uh, Unfortunately, that registration system is obviously broken. Uh, We conducted a 2011 investigation of Chinese ivory sales that found that the vast majority of retailers were simply pawning off illegal ivory as legal. Uh, And so it's obvious that the corruption uh, problem stands, that the registration system is not an effective tool for controlling the illegal trade. And IFA has has pivoted uh, to doing these big public awareness campaigns. Uh, We have uh, PSAs out on uh, the airwaves with key opinion leaders. We have uh, big advertising campaigns in airports and um, subway stations all over the country uh, trying to educate the Chinese public about what exactly ivory is. Because we found that uh, in a survey, most Chinese uh, consumers thought that ivory was simply elephant teeth, that it dropped out like uh, with a human uh, child Mm. and that you could harvest it without harming the elephant populations or individuals, which is obviously uh, not true. Mm-hmm. And so we've also partner, partnered with companies like Taobao, uh, the Alibaba subsidiary, mm-hmm. uh, Chinese e-commerce company to ban ivory sales on their websites. We're working with the Chinese government to improve policies um, that discourage or ban ivory purchases outright. And I mentioned earlier uh, the ivory crush that the U.S. federal government did. We um, IFA partnered with the Fish and Wildlife Service on that project, which was uh, a big media draw. Uh, the U.S. government crushed about six tons of its illegal ivory stockpile. And very soon thereafter, the Chinese government crushed 6.1 tons. Uh, it's <laughs> Friendly competition. <laughs> yeah, it, it, it is. China's feeling the heat on these endangered species issues and wildlife trafficking, uh, which is one of the reasons it's so important for the U.S. to take the lead. Mm-hmm. Masha, I'd like to talk about the national strategy for combating wildlife trafficking. Um, This is something that came out about a year ago, and there is a three-part strategy involved, and I'd like for you to discuss the first priority, which is strengthening domestic and global enforcement. How does the Obama administration intend to do that? Um, Well, first I wanted to mention that there is now an implementation plan to this national strategy, which came out um, last week. And um, so this, that's one important critical step is they're really laying out detailed, you know, um, detailed next steps to ways we can implement this into practice. But ways the administration has already addressed strengthening domestic and global enforcement, I wanted to give two examples. Um, one is Operation Crash. Um, this was an effort from Fish and Wildlife Service, about 150 agents, um, were target their their goal was to crack down on rhino horn smuggling ring in the United States through a series of undercover investigations. 
And so um, this was in 2012 to 2013, and they made 15 arrests, um, seven, seven convictions in 13 states, and seized a lot of illegal rhino horn as part of this um, effort. Another operation uh, is Operation Cobra 2. Um, this is a global effort, um, actually Chinese-led, um, in 2014, um, and it involved 28 countries, including the United States, the World Customs Organization, Interpol, CITES. Um, this was, the point was to cr- crack down on illegal wildlife trade in general, and um, as part of this effort, they made 400 arrests and recovered 10,000 live um, European eels and pig-nosed turtles, 2,000 live snakes, 36 rhino horns, 1,000 tiger hides. So these are just two examples of uh, domestic and international effort. Um, it, it, in addition, uh, domestically, uh, U.S. is um, uh, reevaluating sentencing guidelines applicable to wildlife trafficking crimes. Um, in order to ensure that we're providing appropriate deterrence to those that illegally import and export wildlife products. Um, The U.S. uh, Fish and Wildlife Service is um, deploying investigative agents to U.S. embassies in countries like Peru um, and and to Bangkok and to Tanzania. Um, So their purpose will be to interface with local governments um, specifically on wildlife crime issues. Um, their uh, efforts include enhancing timely information sharing between wildlife trafficking law enforcement agencies and intelligence agencies. And also they're looking at tools that we can use to direct funds taken from wildlife traffickers back to conservation efforts so that we can protect wildlife. Fantastic. And internationally, a lot of the efforts are like uh, COBRA 2 that I mentioned, but also um, improving capacity building in our partner countries, um, assessing and remedying gaps in existing enforcement tools, uh, using existing tools that uh, exist to address illegal firearms, drugs, and human trafficking that are already in place, just using those channels to address wildlife crime. Um, and certainly providing technical uh, and training uh, support uh, overseas um, through organizations like, uh, actually, like the IFAD. I know Peter just outlined some of the great work they've done on training. So these are just a few examples. Fantastic. You know, Peter, the second priority of the strategy is to reduce demand for illegally traded wildlife at home and abroad. Um, I know you've discussed some of the things that you're doing in China with the PSAs. Um, what is IFA doing and, and what do you hope the Obama administration will do to bring that strategy, that part of the strategy, to fruition? Well, most of what we've been talking about is demand reduction in the sense that if sellers can't sell it, buyers aren't going to buy it. Ivory is not like drugs where people are probably going to want them whether or not they're legal. Ivory is a product where for most people, as soon as they think about what it is, where it comes from, uh, the toll it's taking on elephants, they recoil from the idea of using it for decoration. And they should. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's why public education is so crucial. We need to get folks thinking, do I really need this tusk or this tiger pelt instead of just defaulting to, oh, this would look great in my den. Um, as far as actually getting from A to B, uh, that's the million-dollar question. The U.S. Ivory Crush uh, in 2013 drew a ton of media attention, but we haven't seen anything big like that in a while. Now, the White House just put out their implementation plan, and in it they talk about working with communications firms, with marketers, 
uh, bringing in industry partners from the airlines and cruise ship companies, various other stakeholders like IFA and HSI, to unpack ways they can reach this huge and varied and honestly distracted audience that is the American public. Uh, it's going to be a challenge, um, but we're doing our best to keep our members and the public informed and engaged, and it really does feel like we're starting to reach critical mass. Um, your visitors, uh, your listeners rather, can, can visit us at ifaw.org, find out more, um, and we'll do our best to keep them updated. I would imagine, Masha, that um, part of the third priority of the strategy to strengthen partnerships with international partners, local communities, NGOs, private industries, and others um, to combat illegal wildlife poaching and trade would be a big part of this outreach campaign. Talk to us about how you see these partnerships working um, to, to further conserve wildlife to a greater degree. Well, we think that the partnership has really been effective um, ever since the executive order creating the task force to combat wildlife trafficking came out. Um, there's just been this huge boost to organizations like uh, like ours, like HSI and IFA, um, galvanizing public attention and really just bringing these issues to the forefront, both you know the political levels and and among the public. Um, and if you look at the, for example, the makeup of the advisory council, um, it just highlights the, the the fact that it's really all hands on deck, and uh, there are there's representative from a private investment firm, uh, legal experts, representative from eBay, um, you know, former Department of Justice folks, um, and certainly conservation groups. Um, so the, 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 that partnership is there, and it's really encouraging to see. Um, the administration has been great at involving the public at large um, and reaching out to the conservation groups like ours and private industries. So all these stakeholders are involved in commenting on what should be included, uh, well, what was eventually included in the national strategy and implementation plan. There were meetings that were public and where everyone had an opportunity to voice their concerns and suggestions. Um, and I think um, Peter mentioned some of this. The, the partnerships include reaching out to exporters, shippers, and retail businesses uh, to get these folks to adopt voluntary business practices that will make it impossible for traffickers to use their export, transit, or sales platforms. Mm-hmm. With, with, that makes really, perfect sense. It does. And it just, we just need to keep this momentum going. I think that's the most critical thing. And, of course, resources. Um, resources need to be applied to this effort. Mm-hmm. Well, af- absolutely. I mean, that's that's always the <laughs> the bottom line is you know making sure that there's funding to um, you know put the manpower behind it. We've got to take a quick commercial break, but when we come back, we're going to talk about trophy hunting and what role that plays in um, what's going on with African elephants. So don't go away, folks. There's more Go Green Radio right after this. Talk, talk, talk. That's all we do is talk. If you'd like to talk, call us toll-free right now at 1-866-472-5787. 1-866-472-5787. That's it. That's it. VoiceAmerica.com. Take a wild guess. How much garbage generated in the United States today is converted into energy? Is it 26%? 43%? Or 14%. 
Working here and around the world to produce a reliable supply of clean, green energy, Covanta Energy works with communities to turn household trash into energy. Oh, yeah, that question I asked earlier? Today, only 14% of U.S. garbage is converted to energy. Just 14%. Covanta alone processes half of that municipal solid waste into renewable energy for a cleaner world. For more information about Covanta Energy, visit us today at www.covantaenergy.com. If you are interested in real estate in America's largest city or anywhere, be sure to listen for Good Morning New York Real Estate with Vince Rocco. Although our focus is on Manhattan and other real estate markets in and around New York City, we'll have plenty of information that will help you successfully buy, sell, and close a transaction no matter where you are in the world. Good Morning New York Real Estate with Vince Rocco can be heard every Tuesday at 9 a.m. in New York, 6 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. You're listening to Go Green Radio with your host, Jill Buck. Jill would love to hear your comments or questions on today's show, so call us toll-free at 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Write to us, too. Save some trees and send us an email to gogreenradio at gmail.com. That's gogreenradio at gmail.com. Now back to Go Green Radio with your host, Jill Buck. Welcome back to Go Green Radio. Peter, I would like to touch on the issue of trophy hunting because it's something, you know, just personally, it's a little bit tough for me to understand. Uh, but I know that there are a lot of enthusiasts in the U.S. We even saw uh, a lot of people who are not so enthusiastic about trophy hunting get riled up about, um, I think it was black rhino hunting licenses or some oh, yeah. kind of a, a giveaway or, you know, auction item that happened not too long ago. So help us understand what is the difference between poaching and trophy hunting and how large is the trophy hunting community in the u.s i mean give us some idea of how many people are involved how many licenses to kill elephants are granted in the u.s to hunters each year i I really would like to know uh well i'm not actually sure about overall numbers of trophy hunters um safari club international which i believe is the country's biggest group has about fifty-five thousand members worldwide but a much smaller number can actually afford the tens of thousands of dollars it costs to hunt an African elephant. According to the data we pulled for our petition, the United States has averaged about 400 or so trophy imports per year over the last decade. Um, but to address the meat of your question, I mean, in one sense, at least from the animal welfare perspective, there's really no difference at all between poaching and trophy hunting. Both animals wind up on the wrong side of a bullet. Mm-hmm. And for a creature that we know to be intensely social, uh, intelligent, capable of complex emotion, this is a horrible way to go, and both poaching and trophy hunting throw elephant families into chaos. Um, they distort sex ratios, they deplete the gene pool, and otherwise play havoc with the species. Now, I do want to be fair here. Most trophy hunters probably abide by the law, um, which we disagree with, but still, um, and they don't have the same destabilizing impact on human communities that criminal and terrorist groups and other groups that benefit from poaching do. But if you were a poor villager in Congo, say, and you were told that you couldn't kill an elephant to provide for your family, but this foreign hunter could just come in and blast away, well, I mean, it seems obvious that there are some pretty important social justice issues at play with trophy Mm. hunting. 
Interesting. Yeah, you know, I didn't even think about that. But, I mean, if you look at the value of elephant products and that value isn't shared with the local community but rather exported and and there's no benefit to the local community, that is a social justice issue. That's really an interesting take. Um, Masha, of course, leading hunting organizations often make the argument that hunting can actually help the conservation of a species. Give us your thoughts on this line of reasoning. Sure. And um, just to chime in what Peter was saying about our petition, in our analysis, um, we concluded that uh, between 2003 and 2012, the U.S. Um, imports of hunting, hunting trophies amounted to 7,500 African elephant lives. That's a substantial number. Um, in terms of you know, the arguments that are put forward um, in favor of the, um, of the hunts, it's often said that um, the sport hunting helps local communities, and as Peter mentioned, there's really that, that there are there's research that shows that in fact that is just not the case. Um, one uh, estimate by the International Council for Game and Wildlife Conservation, it's actually a pro hunting group, estimates that only three percent of the revenue from trophy hunting makes it to the communities, and um, the, there's uh, also yes last year. U.S. Uh, government banned imports of sport-hunted uh, elephant trophies from Tanzania and Zimbabwe. And in their decision, they su- cited to the fact that there was a lack of sufficient evidence to say that the hunts were helping local communities. And, of course, that there was corruption in terms of the distribution of the funds. So there's just, you know, it's arguable what really makes it to, to the locals. Mm-hmm. Secondly, there are, you know, biological arguments against this. So... Um, it, when you hunt an elephant, you're killing a, a healthy animal and you're disrupting the ecosystem. So basically, the, this practice is counter-evolutionary. Um, as most hunters target large, robust, and healthy males uh, to display in a trophy room. So in a natural system, these males would live long, full lives, protecting their mates and offspring and contributing their genes to future generations. And um, really, unfortunately, sport hunting also detrimentally disrupts natural animal behavior. So animals begin to fear being out uh, in daylight. Uh, they avoid, you know, their watering holes during the daytime. They come to come out only at night. I mean, it's just a, it's an impact that is really felt, you know, all the way down the chain and in the entire ecosystem. Mm-hmm. Masha, for our listeners who want to take action on this issue, how do you suggest that they get involved? I think the most important thing is for um, us to realize that we are consumers of wildlife, whether that's an ivory trinket, turtle shell box, or you know, hunting trophy. Um, we we are really the, the the reason behind a lot of these poaching crises, not just for African elephants, but another animal, pangolin or rhinos, but um, many other species. So what we need to do is not to buy wildlife products. And um, you can go to hsi.org and ifa.org to to to, to join us in this movement. Um, we also, of course, you know, you will see when you go to antique markets, illegal uh, and, antiques there. It's estimated about one-third of uh, uh, antique ivory in the United States is illegal, so it's post-1989 CITES listing. So we need to just speak out and, and address this, bring this to the awareness of local authorities, um, but certainly not to buy uh, ivory. And what it's the message that it sends is that these animals are worth more dead to us than they are alive, um, which, which to me, I mean, we're really cr- reaching a critical 
point of crisis in terms of extinction. We're entering the sixth extinction, um, you know, as a, as a world, and that's really scary. And uh, really importantly, we are driving state bans on ivory trade and rhino horn trade. Um, we've been successful as NGOs in New York and New Jersey to pass bans like this, but they are currently underway in California, Hawaii, and other states. So when we need folks on, uh, you know, listening to this podcast to support these efforts, call their representatives in their individual states, and to get these bans through until we have federal action in place. And, Peter, um, I, yeah. I just I want to give mm-hmm. Peter. We've got about yeah. thirty seconds left. Peter, absolutely. Same question. Um, you know, some of the, our listeners are students. You know, they're young people. How can they get involved? Uh, everything Masha said is spot on. I think uh, that probably the next. Uh, big time that folks should get involved is when the Fish and Wildlife Service publicizes their proposed rule, which we expect to be coming up in a month or so. Uh, visit ifaw.org, visit hsi.org, uh, and make your voice heard. Absolutely. Well, thank you so much, Peter and Masha, for being with us on Go Green Radio. This was a great episode, and I hope our listeners enjoyed it. Folks, we'll be here same time, same place next week with more Go Green Radio. Until then, have a wonderful week and do something in your life to go green. Did you get some terrific ideas from today's show? Please join us for more next Friday at 9 a.m. Pacific Time, noon Eastern Time. It's Go Green Radio with Jill Buck here on Voice America. Go Green Radio is proudly sponsored by Covanta Energy, a leader in providing renewable energy solutions for a cleaner world. Visit www.covantaenergy.com for more information. We'll see you here next week.